very good to be back uh, with you. In case you're not aware, uh, we had our first child on May 22nd, and praise God. She got her mother's look, so praise God again. Amen. Um, it's been difficult, and I just wanted to say uh, a word of gratitude to this church family. This is really the first time that we've been uh, recipients of a meal train, and the love and support that's been shown by members of this church has just been, um, I have no words. So I just want to say thank you so much for your love. And even if you're not part of that meal train, I still feel loved by you from your prayers and from for reaching out. And uh, it's been truly a joy to see the church family in action in this way. So praise God for that. I was also encouraged to hear that we have more pastors, so praise the Lord for that. Um, their first act as pastors was to leave me by myself for the week, so <laughs> anything that happens today is on them. I'm just kidding. Let's ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you so much for your word and for this church. We pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit that you would work in us as your word is preached and taught. You know, Lord, that for some reason... Um, uh, I am feeling anxious. So we pray, Lord, that for this preacher and for the sake of your church, that you would remove this anxiety from me so that it wouldn't be about the preacher, but it would be all about you and your word and your truth. Speak through this feeble man to us for your glory and change us in our seats because you are powerful to do so. It's in Christ's name we pray and listen. Amen. I want to be a strong person, and I want you to be strong people also. If someone were to walk into our education hallway during Sunday school and start shooting, I wouldn't want to be outside waiting. I'd want to be the first one rushing into that hallway at the risk of my own life, and I would want all of you right behind me men at front, because I'm old-fashioned that way. I want to say that that's what I would do. It is very easy to judge police officers after the fact when you weren't there. You don't actually know what you would do unless you were faced with that situation. But I want what I just described to be true for me and true for you. I want to be a strong person willing to lay down my life to save another, and I want that for you too. But more importantly, that's what God wants for us. It doesn't ultimately matter what I want or what the other pastors want. What ultimately matters is what God wants according to his word, and God wants us to be strong, life-risking, life-saving people. One area in which I have not been personally strong, and I venture to say that many of you would say the same about yourselves, is abortion. And that's what I'm preaching about today. Full disclosure, this is more topical in nature. And I want to start by, by acknowledging that for some of you, this, this sermon may be a particularly difficult sermon. Some of you may have had abortions in the past or you have approved of an abortion in the past, 
And I know that if you're a believer, there is a sense in which it haunts you to this day. And I want, first of all, to remind you that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Small and great, all your sins are forgiven. And I want to remind you that even though there may be pain from that decision still on this earth today, even if it's been decades, I want to remind you that there will come a day where God will wipe every tear from your eye. And if you're not a Christian, there is hope for you as well. Place your trust in Jesus Christ, and you will be forgiven every single sin. So that's what I want to say first of all. Secondly, if you are someone who's had an abortion in the past, then be encouraged with this also, that it's been said that, that such women are some of the most effective in ministering to other people who are tempted to do the same thing. So just, just bear that in mind as we labor through this passage together and give you some ideas at the end. So I acknowledge and I sympathize that this sermon may be particularly difficult for such women and even men who were part of it. But this sermon may be difficult and challenging really for all of us. Here's a stark reality, First Baptist Church of the Lakes. Just a seven-minute drive from here, babies are regularly murdered. In 2017, these are the most recent numbers that I could find. In 2017, 9,690 babies were aborted in Nevada alone. 9,690, to put it in perspective, on average, that's 26 to 27 children per day. Just imagine, I want you to imagine for a moment, the national outrage if 26 to 27 children were gunned down in school every day in Nevada. Oh, the outrage. There would be no stopping gun control for sure. And it wouldn't even just be liberals pushing that. Even conservatives would be appalled if 26 to 27 children were gunned down in school every day in Nevada. And yet there is not the same outrage that's generated from the reality that 26 to 27 children are legally killed by doctors in Nevada alone on a daily basis. And I understand that disconnect. I understand that disconnect. We feel a greater emotional impact when something terrible happens to people that we more closely relate to. Let me demonstrate this. Seven days ago, last Sunday, at a church in Nigeria, there were these attackers who came in motorcycles and they started shooting sporadically at the church. Raise your hand if you knew about this. Okay, so a few hands. They started shooting sporadically at the church and at least 28 people were killed seven days ago in church in Nigeria. In Monday's Review Journal, this was the headline. Weekend of Violence but it wasn't talking about Nigeria. It was highlighting the multiple casualties in several shootings across the U.S. And don't get me wrong, those are, those are big deals as well. The church in Nigeria made a small blurb at the bottom of page six. Again, I understand this. I'm not above this temptation. I'm not above this weakness. Nigeria is 
clear across the world. Uvalde hits us closer because it was in our own country and it was an elementary school to boot. One October 2017 hit us just as hard, if not harder, because it was right in our hometown, on a street on which many of us have driven before. But I ask you this, is it really any less outrageous because it was across the world? Is it any less outrageous if it's in the womb? What prompted this sermon was a few weeks back, a brother had sent me a video. You may have received the same text message that I did. But it was about how some anti-abortion protesters acquired medical waste, as they call it, from an abortion clinic. Uh, it was graphic. It was graphic, and there was a graphic warning, but I was like, I need to watch this. And the reason why that it elicited such a powerful response from me, in particular, is that the waste that was shown in the video was babies. And they were about the same size as my daughter at the time. And that suddenly made it real for me. It wasn't just theological theory anymore. It wasn't just politicking. I saw that people were willing to kill children the size of my daughter just because the children weren't outside of the womb yet. Now I know that not all aborted children are that big, but let me ask you this, let me start her size and go smaller and you tell me when it's okay. Some argue that the cutoff is when the baby is viable. And viability is defined as 24 weeks. So I just, I wanna make sure that I understand that logic. 24 weeks, viable and worthy of protection, but 23 weeks, 6 days, and 23 hours, that child doesn't deserve the same protection? Brothers and sisters, it's outrageous. And it's happening all the time, and even in our own neighborhood. And I have not been strong in this area, because if I had been, I would have been doing something about it. But I want to be a strong person. And I want you to be strong too. But more importantly, God wants us to be strong. In our passage, we're going to see that God wants us to be strong and to save people from death. And we'll see that pleading ignorance is not going to cut it with God. So let's take those at one at a time. First, God wants us to be strong. Take a look again. We're in Proverbs 24, verse 10. If you faint... In the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. What this is essentially saying is that when things get hard, if you shrink up, if you falter, then it's showing that you're not strong. You're not strong at all. Martin Luther said regarding this verse, He is not strong who is not firm in need. He is not strong who is not firm in need in need. If you run away at that moment where you're needed the most, you're not strong. Now most commentators of this verse have, I think, rightly inferred that, that the author is not just making an observation here. Okay? It, it would be kind of like if I said, if you run out of gas in the desert, you didn't have enough fuel. 
If you run out of gas in the desert, you didn't have enough fuel. It's not just, oh, well, that's an interesting observation. No, it's, it's an exhortation. It's a warning. Make sure that you gas up properly so that you don't run out of gas in the desert. And similarly here, we have an implied exhortation to be strong so that you don't faint in the day of adversity, so that when it gets difficult, rather than faint, you would rise to the occasion. This isn't the only place that we see that God wants us to be strong. Here are some examples. Joshua 1.6, be strong and courageous. Psalm 31.24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. 1 Corinthians 16.13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Ephesians 6.10, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So God does indeed want us, commands us to be strong. Well, how do we do that? How do we get stronger so that on the day of adversity, we don't faint? Answer, trust in the one who is strong. Trust in the one who is strong. Isaiah 40, verses 28 through 31 says this. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So get strong by trusting in the strong one. The more that you trust in God, the stronger that you will be. And the stronger that you are, the less likely you'll faint on the day of adversity. Well, how do you grow in trusting God? First, pray. And there's a, there's a couple ways that we mean that. Pray, asking God to help you trust him more. But also, prayer has this built-in mechanism to grow your trust because the more you pray, the more you see how he listens to prayer, which will then also increase your trust and strength in him. Pray, read the word. Read the word. See from his word over and over again throughout history that his promises have never failed and that he can do and does do whatever he pleases. See how he works all things for the good of his people. Hear his comforting and strengthening voice as you read his word, in his word. So pray, read the word. Another way you grow in trusting God is by suffering. The more that you suffer, and the more that you suffer in a godly way, according to God's perfect will, and the more that you trust him through it, the more that you will realize that he is worthy to be trusted. He wants us to be strong. Being anti-abortion is difficult these days. This conversation is a passionate and a polarized one. People don't usually talk about this calmly. This has only happened once, but our brothers at Redeemer have actually had a gun brandished at them at the abortion mill. 
A couple times ago when I went down there, a man went straight up to them and threatened to beat them up. The language was more colorful than that. And our brothers, by God's grace, their response was gentleness and pleading. They did not back down. And they kept themselves blameless, even though this person was getting all up in their face. And that gentle pleading, in the midst of violent threat, was strength. They did not faint in the day of adversity. They stood courageously for Christ. They stood for the children. They even stood for the parents. I want to be like that. Don't you? God wants us to be strong. Number two, God wants us to save people from death. God wants us to save people from death. Verse 11 says this, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. Notice that it doesn't say pray for them. It doesn't say temporarily change your profile picture for them. You should definitely pray. Don't mishear me. You should definitely pray. And changing your profile picture to show that you are for life actually is, is good. It's fine. It'll, it'll get you some heat. Praise God. But that's just not enough if you're able to do something else. It's not enough if to do. It's not enough if you're able to do something else. And how do we know this? Consider James 2, verses 15 through 16. James 2, 15 through 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So in other words, if, if somebody needs food and clothing and all you do is give them a benediction, which is essentially a prayer in the form of a blessing, but you don't give them the food and clothing that you have to give to them, then it's not enough according to the word in James. Prayer is essential. Prayer is where we start. But our responsibility as God's people goes further than that as we have opportunity. So more than prayer, more than temporary profile pictures, we are to, verse 11 says, rescue. We are to deliver them. And we could add an inference from all of Scripture, rescue them in any lawful way. In other words, bombing abortion mills? No. Death threats to abortionists? Absolutely not. Especially not in the name of Christ. But could rescuing others perhaps mean breaking man's law as long as it's not breaking God's law? Sure, sure. One of the most amazing stories that I've ever heard in abortion ministry is of a, of a brother named Chet. Uh, Chet was a police officer who was on duty, and he was called, dispatched, to go to an abortion clinic to remove these protesters who had formed a human barricade, which is not a, a tactic that I endorse, but I understand the sentiment. I understand the sentiment. But when Officer Chet rolled up and he saw what was happening, he joined that human barricade and ended up losing his job. That's strength in the day of adversity. We are to rescue them. Rescue who? Verse 11. 
those who are being taken away to death. What's implied here are, are people who are not deserving of death, but are nonetheless being taken away to death, despite the fact that they don't deserve it. And we're not sure exactly whom or what situations the author has in mind in particular, but that's, that's the beauty of a proverb. Proverbs are general principles that you can apply in all sorts of ways. So it could apply, for example, to somebody on death row whom you know is innocent. They've been wrongly accused and they're on death row, so you do whatever you can lawfully to get them off of death row. It could apply to seeing a citizen whose neck is being knelt on by a police officer and saying, sir, please get off of him. It could apply to breaking out prisoners of war. It certainly applies to those in the womb who have done nothing deserving of death. What can be done to rescue them? Well, we'll save that for the end of the sermon. But the rest of verse 11 has some poetic parallelism. And what that means is when a concept is said again in a different way, sometimes it's for emphasis, sometimes it's for contrast, and sometimes it's to add another dimension to the thought. So we see in verse 11, again, from the beginning, rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. So we see an added dimension here. The first half is about those who are being taken away to death against their will. And the second half is about those who are stumbling toward death themselves. That could be talking about people whose lifestyles are going to lead to their own destruction, which was all of us before Christ, by the way. For example, in Proverbs 7, 25 through 27, Proverbs 7, 25 through 27, the author is giving a warning to his son, and he says this about the adulteress. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Paraphrase, stay away from her, son. The paths that she's going to lead you down are going to lead to your destruction. Likewise, Proverbs 14, 12 says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. So we know that's true. We know that there are people who are on this path, and if they do not turn away from it and turn to Christ, they are going to go to their own destruction. So what are we to do? Let people keep stumbling to their own destruction? No. This verse says we are to hold them back. Watching the guys of, of Redeemer talk to those who are walking into the abortion clinics, I'm very happy to report, the conversation is not the stereotypical, you're going to go to hell for this. No, it's a compassionate pleading Please don't do this. Please do not kindle God's wrath against you by killing your child. And, and it's offering them forgiveness in Jesus Christ, even if they did go forward with it. So you see, this kind of ministry is not only about the child, it's also about the parent. It's about holding them back from stumbling to their own destruction. Proper abortion ministry has compassion for the parents as well. 
even though they are the aggressors in this situation. Now, I know what you're thinking. Sometimes those who are seeking abortions are victims. And that's true. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they've been raped. Sometimes they don't want to do this, but they're being coerced by a boyfriend or a parent into doing this. And I sympathize with that. But that doesn't change the fact that the victim in the abortion is the child. The oppressed person in the abortion is the child. The underprivileged person in the abortion is the child. I was walking out to the, from the hospital from postpartum to my car and I saw this, uh, what do you call them, bumper stickers. I saw a bumper sticker on a car that had a bunch of liberal stickers on it and it said, fight for those who don't have your privilege. And in this context, I give a hearty amen. You have been given the privilege of living. Fight for those who are having that privilege removed from them. While we're on objections, what about, what about pregnancies in which the mother's life is at risk? Look, there is a big difference between performing an abortion and attempting to do a nearly impossible procedure to try to save both lives, even if you know that it is highly unlikely that child is going to survive. There's a difference. Well, isn't it her body, her choice? That's not her body inside of her. That's her child's body inside of her. Why should a man have any say in this? That's one of the most sexist things I've ever heard. It's just a clump of cells. And when my daughter was in utero, uh, at week 24, she had her hand like this in her face like this. And then when we did another ultrasound, that 4D one, she had her hand like this. Coming out of the womb, her hand was up here, which caused some problems for Megan. And today, this is how she sleeps. Don't tell me that she was just a clump of cells in the womb. You're a clump of cells, technically. <laughs> you people only care about life in the womb. Okay, well, let's think about that. Even if that were the case, let, this is the, this is the uh, accusation lobbed against us. You only care about life in the womb, but when they're out of the womb, you don't care. Let's say that that were true, which it's not. It still wouldn't make abortion right. But this objection does have a point we need to consider. If we're really for life, we need to be willing to put our money where our mouths are. I've heard that from good counselors, it's really not the best thing to offer to adopt someone's child because they don't necessarily want to carry that to full term just to give the child away all the time. But would we at least be willing to financially and otherwise support a mom who listened to you and turned away from having an abortion? I, I, I read recently that the Little Caesars founder for Rosa Parks, because Rosa Parks took a lot of heat and threats and violence after she protested. But the, the founder of Little Caesars put her up in a very nice place and paid for her rent for the rest of her life. Would you be willing to do that for someone who turned away from having an abortion? If you had the ability? If that's what it takes to rescue the baby's life and to hold the parents back from stumbling to the slaughter, are we willing? God wants us to be strong. He wants us to save people from death. And thirdly, 
pleading ignorance is not going to cut it with God. Verse 12 says this, If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? I really like how the, the New Living Translation translates this verse. That translation is, takes a lot of heat because it's not word for word, it's more thought for thought. It really is less literal. But I think it captures the heart of what's being said here correctly in this spot. Don't excuse yourself by saying, look, we didn't know. For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. He will repay all people as their actions deserve. So don't excuse yourself by saying, look, God, we didn't know. That might be what we're tempted to do to, to try to excuse ourselves before men. In the miniseries uh, Band of Brothers, there's this one memorable scene that, that really just stuck with me where the American soldiers have come, a, come upon this concentration camp that the Nazis have deserted. And the soldiers see the state of these survivors and they rush back into the nearby town to commandeer food for the survivors. But one of the German bakers protests to having his business basically cleared out. And one angry American soldier threatens that baker at gunpoint, accusing the baker of colluding with the Nazis unless he, quote, never smelled the stench from the camp. They knew. How could they not? We know. Abortion is alluded to here from this pulpit all the time. It's in the news all the time, especially right now. We know. We can't say we didn't know what was going on right in our neighborhood. And even if we could convince another person that we didn't know, we can't convince God. Verse 12, For God understands all hearts and he sees you. He who guards your soul knows you knew. God, almighty, omniscient, is well aware that we are well aware of this situation. That Nevada doctors are conducting state-sanctioned executions of 26 to 27 on average children per day, and God's people are largely silent about it. I have been largely silent about it. How about you? This proverb comes with a warning. Verse 12. And will he not repay man according to his work? Or as the New Living Translation puts it, he will repay all people as their actions deserve. Now we're a church that, that emphasizes what the Bible teaches about God's sovereign grace. If you have been saved by God, you will never ever lose your salvation. God will never pour out his wrath on you because he has already poured it out on his son. But with that said, shouldn't this verse still cause us to tremble? God is going to repay the church for her silence if she remains silent. What could that mean? It could mean that some professing believers are going to actually be revealed as unbelievers. 
It could mean that some professing believers will be revealed as unbelievers. Jesus teaches in Matthew 24, 41 through 45. Matthew 24, 41 through 45. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will say, answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty? Or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. The people who are condemned to hell here in this teaching are those who did not take care of those who are in need. Now, what Jesus is not teaching is that you can lose your salvation. What Jesus is teaching is that if you are one of his, you will care about the needy. And as you have the opportunity, you will care for the needy. And if you refuse to take the opportunities that are given to you, then you might be shown as someone whom the Lord does not know. He might say of you, depart from me. The scriptures give us warnings like these all the time, Old and New Testament, not so that we can fear losing our salvation, but so that we might know what being saved looks like and what being a reprobate looks like. I'm not saying that if you've never done abortion ministry, you're not saved. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is that if you harden your heart against the oppressed, if you are aware of the need and you have the opportunity to meet the need and you refuse to, then you may be bearing the fruit of an unbeliever. So be warned. That's, of course, true about any sin. It's true about any sin. If there's any sin that you're unwilling to repent of, then you may possibly be an unbeliever. That's why we have church discipline. Out of love, we correct somebody again and again and again. And if they still refuse to repent after it's been brought to the whole church, then we treat them as an unbeliever because they're acting like one. So we do that for every sin. Sin of omission is also sin. Failing to do what you know you ought to do is sin. James 4.17 says this, Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I'm also not saying that everybody needs to be doing the same thing. Not everyone can go down to the abortion clinics because not everyone has the opportunity to do so. But whatever you have the opportunity to do, you ought to do. God's word in Galatians 6.10 says this, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Emphasizing the words, as we have opportunity. One Christian can't solve all the world's problems, but every Christian can take every opportunity that they have been given by God to do good. So, those who do nothing 
might reveal themselves to be unbelievers, or they really could be true believers who are going to face loving discipline from God. Hebrews says that God loves his children, and because God loves his children, he disciplines them. If you have the opportunity to do something about this atrocity that you are aware of, you have the opportunity to do it, and you do nothing, then our loving Father may chasten you. He might be doing so in this very sermon. He may be convicting you of sin right now, and if that's you, then what he wants of you is change by his grace. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. So in that situation, in that context, Paul was rejoicing, not because the Corinthians felt bad, but because they felt bad in a way that caused them to actually change what they were doing. God also may remove local churches. That's the warning in Revelation 2, when Christ says to these local churches, I will remove your lampstand. He's not saying that he would take away their salvation, but that he would take away their local church, and for some of them, he did just that. God has been very patient with us, but he could very well close First Baptist Church of the Lakes' doors if she remains silent about this. Why am I being so heavy with this warning? Because the passage is heavy with this warning. Will he not repay man for his work? But we also need to remember there is grace. Grace has been given to us because Jesus lived the life that we could not live. He died on the cross for sinners like you and me, and he rose from the grave as our victor. There is grace in Jesus Christ, saints. There is justifying grace in Christ. And what that means is that for all we who believe in Jesus Christ, in God's courtroom, we have been declared not guilty. And that's a verdict that will never change. But there's also sanctifying grace. God gave us new hearts. He took out our hearts of stone and gave us hearts of flesh. He wrote the law on our very hearts instead of external tablets of stone. And he continues to mold our desires after his. And he uses his word as being preached to you and as you read it, and his Holy Spirit to accomplish this. God, working in you, can use this sermon to convict you and to mold you and to shape you into his likeness. In other words, we shouldn't stand for the oppressed just because we don't want to be revealed as unbelievers or just because we don't want to be disciplined or just because we don't want to lose our church. We should do it because God, our Savior, loves when we do it. And we should want to love what God loves. And because God gives us opportunities to do good. And because we have been, Ephesians 2.10, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. This isn't meant to just be a guilt trip. It's a rallying cry to be the church, 
to be those who make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us, and to be those who love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and strengths, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. O church, arise and put your armor on. Hear the call of Christ, our captain. For now, the weak can say that they are strong in the strength that God has given. With shield of faith and belt of truth, we'll stand against the devil's lies. An army bold, whose battle cry is love, reaching out to those in darkness. But if that's not enough to encourage us, then sometimes we need to hear the warnings of Scripture. God graciously gives the warnings to us to help us to snap out of our stupor. God wants us to be strong. God wants us to save people from death. And pleading ignorance is not going to cut it with God. Where do we go from here? We'll give you two broad categories and six more practical, smaller ideas. The first one is pray. Earlier we said that prayer is not where our responsibility ends. But don't mistake that to mean that it's unimportant to pray. We must pray. If this land is ever going to be rid of abortion, at least as something that is legal, then it will be by God's sovereign and mighty hand alone. And it will be in part through the prayers and the actions of the saints. So pray. Remind yourself to pray regularly because people are being killed regularly. Pray for strength on the day of adversity as you continue to trust in God. So pray. Second big category, just start doing what you can. Just start doing what you can. Not everyone can do every possible good thing. There's lots, of a, there's lots of things for us to do as Christians. But everyone can do at least one of these. Six very practical things. Number one, adjust your budget. Adjust your budget. Part of our church's budget already goes toward this cause, but really, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. If more Christians were to give to anti-abortion ministries from their personal budget, then more resources can be devoted to the cause. So adjust your budget. Two, stand in the gap. Stand in the gap. Money is useful, but we can't simply just throw money at this problem, all right? The concept of standing in the gap, for example, in Ezekiel 22:30, is that you have these ancient city walls, but if there is a breach in the wall... Really, the only way to now protect the people inside the city would be for people to go and fill that gap, to hold back the enemy at the breach. Will you love your neighbors enough to bring both law and gospel to them? Will you risk your life to save lives? It is a dangerous ministry, at least the one I'm talking about of going, actually going down there. But I also want to reassure you that it's, it's not as dangerous as it sounds, at least right now. For the most part, people just pretend not to see or hear you. But let me, let me just challenge you with this. Right now, every Saturday at 8 a.m., I'm joining those brothers and sisters from Redeemer, 
and from Faith Christian Fellowship down at Birth Control Care Center. Write that down. Birth Control Care Center. And that's west of Sahara in Maryland. So every Saturday at 8 a.m., I'm down there. That's my, that's my desire. And I, I would like to see some of you there with me. That would be a blessing. And if you're nervous about it, just know I'm not, we're not going to ask you to go down there and start preaching. I, just come down and watch. Come down and pray. You don't need to hold a sign. You don't need to, you need to say anything. Just watch and pray. And by the way, if you go down there and you're like, I don't really like how they do that. I'm fine with that. Help us do it better. Give feedback about how we can be more effective and more Christ-like. So stand in the gap. Third, offer real help to struggling families. Offer real help to struggling families. There are some people who really have abortions just because they don't want a baby, because it's inconvenient. But there are others because they genuinely, desperately feel that they can't raise a child for a financial reason or for other reasons. Some of you have been incredibly blessed with time and money. And so for you, be willing to offer emotional or financial support and be ready to actually follow through with your commitments like the founder of Little Caesars for the rest of Rosa Parks' life. Four, reach out to your legislators. Reach out to your legislators. Our nation's leaders may try to be emperors, but they're not. They're representatives. They're servants of the people. And they need to know what we think. Perhaps the Lord will change their hearts or, at the very least, change their political strategies because they want to get reelected. So pick up a pen and start writing. Fifth, educate others. Educate others. There are, there are people who genuinely believe, they genuinely believe this because they heard it, that fetuses are not persons. They have been deceived that the babies in the womb are organs or they're clumps of cells. So brush up on the science and educate other people. Hand out literature on campuses and, and other public places. Memorize relevant scriptures so that you can speak the truth in love. And the sixth idea, raise up the next generation. You've got to raise up the next generation. My generation, millennials, and Gen Z, we have grown up with abortion as common. Bill Clinton, I remember this in the 90s. His position in the 90s and Hillary's position in the 90s was that abortion should be safe, legal, and what? Rare. So in the 90s, that was the party line. They should be rare. Today, abortion is anything but rare. In 2017, out of those, those numbers, out of every 100 pregnancies, 18.4 ended in abortion. Out of every 100 pregnancies, 18.4. That's staggering. It has become so common that my generation has grown up thinking that it's normal. But in reality, it is the least natural thing imaginable to kill your child. Our nation's conscience has become so seared and the church's conscience has become numb. Let that not be said about the next generation. Parents, educate your children about this. Raise them up 
to be experts in this matter, theologically and scientifically. Denormalize infanticide. Why do I even have to say that? Denormalize infanticide. That means killing children, babies. At the very least, within the next generation of the lakes. And church family, though parents have that primary responsibility, help them with that. Help them with that. So those are six ideas. We can't do it all, but we all can do something. I want to do something. I want to be a strong person. I want you to be strong people. And more importantly, God wants us to be strong people by his grace and for his glory. Let's ask for his help.